It's Wednesday, May 22nd. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio today from Motley Fool Supernova, Matt Argusinger, and from Fool.com, Matt Koppenheffer. Thanks for being here, guys. Hey. Uh, it's a short week for us because we've got the Memorial Day weekend coming up here in the States. Um, so, so this is it for this week. We will be back next week. Enjoy the long weekend, everyone. Today we're going to talk Wall Street banks uh, and a little bit of trouble in the Magic Kingdom. But let's start with the Fed chief. Ben Bernanke uh, went to Congress today. He's still there now because it's Congress. And when you're testifying in front of the Joint Economic Committee, (laughs) it's going to be a long day for you. Uh, But the headline, guys, is that Bernanke said the U.S. job market is still weak and that it's too soon for the Fed to end the stimulus program. So, uh, Matt Koppenheffer, I'll just start with you. Any, Any rumors or any thinking that the free money forever program was going to end and that Bernanke was going to telegraph that, that's off the table now. Uh, I think so. I think so. And, you know, I'll be perfectly clear on this. I I think this is kind of an unpopular thing to say, but I think he's he's right. I think he's right. I think that's the bottom line. Uh, You look at the indicators. Um, the the economy is starting to improve. Uh, We've seen some GDP growth. We've seen some uh, employment growth. But uh, it's not growing very fast. Uh, we're not seeing much in terms of price inflation. We're not seeing uh, stretching capacity. So, you know, Bernanke is basically fighting against the uh, fighting against Congress. It's it, you know, if you're cooking in the kitchen and you're trying to make something delicious, and somebody is coming in and, and putting dirt in your soup, uh, <laughs> that's sort of like what Congress is doing to Bernanke. Um, that's bad. It, it is bad. It, it it doesn't make for a tasty tasty stew. Um, but I think that he's got little choice except to uh, to keep accommodation in place for now. You agree with this? Well, yes, except I, I, I worry that he's fighting something bigger. I mean, I know one of the mandates of the Fed is, um, you know, unemployment. The problem is I feel like we're, we're down at 7.5% unemployment right now, and I just feel like we might be at a point where there's a structural problem with our with the U.S. economy, and that is we don't have enough jobs for the low-skilled workers, um, enough jobs for those low-skilled workers that's actually going to really dramatically bring down the rate I mean, and that's why, you know, there's all this pressure to pass this new immigration bill. You've got executives from Silicon Valley saying, hey, we, we're hiring. We, we're hiring thousands of people. We just can't find enough. And we can't find enough programmers. We can't find enough systems analysts, network specialists. So I, I just, I'm worried that we're, the Fed's on this, you know, train, this faster, ever faster moving train, trying to get to this, some mythical 6%, I guess, unemployment rate, which is their target. They might not ever get there. And then, then at that point, what's the end game if, if that is the conclusion? That's kind of what I'm worried about. Yeah, that does seem the the six percent. While great in theory, I just look at that and think, boy, is that is that really full employment today well, in in the new normal? I hate using that phrase. Is <laughs> that really full employment, and or is that uh, sort of a stretch target? And if we actually get it down sustainably under seven percent, and it's six point eight, six point seven, that sort of thing, then the conversation can be had about moving it, saying, you know, we're close enough. Um, I don't know, but uh, uh, Matt, we were talking earlier this morning. If you're a Wall Street bank, you're, this is music to your ears, isn't it? The the the, the free money forever. <laughs> it, it at least puts the pain off for a little bit longer. I, I, it, this won't continue for forever, and uh, when it does change, it'll eventually be 
better news for banks, uh, not, not necessarily just the Wall Street banks, I mean banks across the U.S., because essentially right now when they're trying to lend money out, they're getting very little return for it. Uh, when, when the policy changes, when rates start rising, the, uh, the quicker to change funding costs that these banks face will rise faster than the yeah. assets that they're holding, and that'll be bad news for their bottom line. Uh, as we look out longer term, though, uh, they'll be able to lend at higher rates. Eventually, we'll see the the interest spreads start to start to expand again for the banks. Um, but uh, in in the short term, it'll be bad news for them. So, right now, with Bernanke saying keeping keeping money cheap, it'll be good for the banks at, at least for the we next talk, couple of years. We had talked recently about the market hitting a new high. It's seemingly every other week, and to the extent that something like that on a large scale, affects your investment approach. Does this affect your investment approach, uh, monetary policy in the U.S.? Does it matter to you? Is it uh, at all a factor, or is it just something that is sort of on the back burner for you as an investor, and instead you look at it as, if there's some radical shift, then maybe it's going to change my investing approach, but otherwise, no, this I, I don't take this into account. Well, for, for me, it doesn't. I, I mean, I'm... I'm looking at the Fed. I, I want to understand what's going on there. I want to understand the impacts that it that it has. But even in terms of banks, uh, which are going to be some of the most affected in institutions from the Fed's policy, uh, I'm looking at who's running the bank. I'm looking at the value of the franchise, how they're operating, and trying to guess what Bernanke is going to do, whether I think he's right or not, uh, is is not a winner's game. I, I I am paying attention because you know even Buffett himself said. It will be the shot heard around the world when the Fed sort of steps back um, off the gas pedal. And so just my only perspective is when that happens, I think there's likely going to be a market correction. You know, your banks will probably sell off especially, and so there are going to be opportunities. And so you just want to be ready to take advantage. Is this a situation where companies that have more cash on the balance sheet are going to be in much better shape than companies that don't? Well, I, companies that have more cash in the balance sheet are always or, better or is, off. Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> but, but, as soon as I said that, I thought, well, you know what? All <laughs> things being equal, you probably want to be a company with a lot of cash on the balance sheet. But I think, you know, especially looking at financials, looking at banks or or, um, or insurance companies, for example, which are which are better capitalized, they're going to be able to take advantage of higher rates, um, as Matt was talking about, in, in the long term. And, and in that that's a good thing. So look for those well-capitalized uh, banks, and those might be ones you'd look at as opportunities. Speaking of banks, J.P. Morgan Chase CEO Jamie Dimon has been under fire lately. There have been increased calls for him to separate uh, the jobs of CEO and chairman of the board, both of which he holds. And there was a vote held yesterday, Matt Koppenheffer, and it was a landslide. He easily survived the vote. Did First and foremost, did that surprise you at all? I, I didn't surprise me. Uh, I kind of, I kind of saw this coming. I, I didn't see it to that to that extent. So last year they had a similar, um, there, there was a similar shareholder uh, vote on the table, and there were forty percent of shareholders that voted in favor of it. There were only thirty two percent this year, and it was uh, there was much more of a push, much more of a media outcry this year to get to get Diamond to to split up the the roles. Um, I, I think the right thing happened here. I think it was kind of. Uh, a little sad, a little interesting to see Jamie Dimon sort of reveal a little bit of that weak ego in in saying, uh, uh, "I hate you guys. I'm going to take my ball and go home if you take away my chairmanship." Yeah, he basically <laughs> said, "If you do this, I'm out of here. I'm stepping down." And and most people give him high marks for the job he has done as CEO, 
even when you factor in the whole London whale incident, he gets high marks going back to the 2008 crisis and sort of how things were handled out of that. Well, it's been such a turnaround. Coming out of the credit crisis, everybody was saying, Jamie Dimon, he's the best banker ever. I mean, we couldn't even imagine a better banker than Jamie Dimon. And then the London whale happened and all of a sudden it's like, ah, you know, if, if he leaves, if he leaves JP Morgan, maybe that's even a positive for JP Morgan. Uh, I, I'm, I find myself somewhere in the middle. I, I think he's a good banker. I don't think he's the best. He may not even be great. He's a, he's a good banker and I, and I think he'll do well for JP Morgan shareholders going forward. He's, He's done well in the sense that J.P. Morgan has outperformed all the other big banks except for Wells Fargo, right. I think, since the crisis. But, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, J.P. Morgan, he's, he took over, I think, the CEO role in 2005 and then the chairman role in 2006. J.P. Morgan's underperformed the market since then. Granted, we had a big financial crisis that right. hit banks a lot harder. At the same time, do, you know, I'm certainly not a person who puts Jamie Dimon on a pedestal. I, I think he's, he's had a lot of influence on the Fed um, being on the board. You know, and certainly with J.P. Morgan's outperformance of the other banks, he's he's treated at a high, at, a, at a higher stage. But you know, he was also paid twenty three million dollars in two thousand eleven, which was by far bigger than any other banker. Um, and I think his I, I look at his his threat as a little childish. I mean, I think a lot of shareholders yeah. said, "Gosh, if he if Jamie Dimon leaves, J.P. Morgan stock's going to drop fifteen percent. I don't want to take that hit. I'd rather just keep him in the role." And and that's that's kind of the reason he he won handily. I read one essay that our colleague down at Motley Fool Asset Management, Tim Hansen, had tweeted out. I think it was last week, where someone was making the case for splitting up the CEO and chairmanship. And the the crux of his argument with respect to Diamond was he should split this up because he has done a terrible job being chairman. Because one of the primary jobs of the chairman of the board is to plan for succession for the CEO. And he has done none of that. Uh, with that in mind, stepping back from J.P. Morgan Chase, as a general rule of thumb, do you prefer to see two different people in those roles? Does it not matter to you? Do, do you give an exception to people that you feel like do it well? I'm, uh, you know, as we're having this conversation, I'm running through in my head the stocks that I own, and I'm trying to think of. Well, now wait a minute. Who is the, you know, are there people who are separate uh, CEO and chairman at all of these companies? And, and off the top of my head, I'm not entirely sure. So clearly it's not a major factor for me, but, but that argument resonates with me. The whole notion of, look, if you're the chairman of the board, one of your primary responsibilities is to plan for what happens if this CEO, who hopefully is doing a good job, gets hit by a bus. Um, and in that regard, I, I feel like they, should be two separate, but you know, what do you think? Man? Well, right, and you see, obviously, Buffett's been chairman and CEO of Berkshire Hathaway forever, and uh, you know, he's and he's of course, over the, especially over the and last that's few worked years, out well. It's worked out pretty well, <laughs> you know. And other other examples, I mean, I think um, I'm pretty sure Jeff Bezos is also the chairman and CEO of Amazon, for example. There are great examples of, of CEOs who have taken these the dual role. As long as they've, they've built a culture where there's sort of a certain amount of objectivity, the chairman sort of allows the board to do its job, um, and he, do, he or she doesn't invite him or herself to those meetings, lets the board kind of uh, do their thing and, and not wield as much influence um, in that chairmanship role. So, gosh, it's a situational thing, I think. With and I'm not sure you know how it, how it should apply. I mean, Wells Fargo, Stumpf is also the chairman and CEO of Wells Fargo, and that's obviously worked out pretty well. And the same is true at, at Goldman Sachs as well. And, and in some cases, it works out very poorly. Uh, Aubrey McClendon was chairman and CEO. <laughs> I was just going to say, uh, there you go. At Chesapeake for a long time, and that wasn't a tremendously good situation. Uh, before we get to our final story, two 
quick things. Uh, as I mentioned earlier in the week, we have a special free report. It's our top stock. You can get the report uh, just by emailing us, topstock2013 at fool.com. That email address, again, is topstock2013 at fool.com. It was written up by Andy Cross, our chief investment officer. Um, I actually read the report, and it's a, a company I'd never heard of before, And but one, uh, after reading the report, I definitely added to my watch list. So, uh, again, it's a free report. Just email us, topstock2013 at fool.com. Writing that down. Uh, the other thing I wanted to mention uh, was, uh, I, I, I don't know about you, Matt Argusinger, I had a somewhat relaxing weekend. Um, uh, did you as well? Moderately. Um, but Matt Koppenheffer, I, I know for a fact you did not have a relaxing weekend <laughs> because you ran a 100-mile race. I, I did. This I did. is your first 100-mile race. That is correct. It was it, Relaxing is not the way to describe it's it. It's not, yeah. So um, it was your first one. Uh, more than 200 people entered the race. You came in ninth. I which did. is amazing. So kudos for that. Oh, but wow. just um, if you could spend twenty or thirty seconds, just uh, for our dozens of listeners, <laughs> what uh, what was it like to run a one hundred mile race over a twenty four hour period? Well, by by the end of it, it fer- felt very much like just going up a mountain and then stumbling back down a mountain. It it, it was it was in the the George Washington National uh, National Forest. It was the uh, Massanutten Mountain Trail. 100 and uh it is a rocky rocky course and there are um there are boulders and stones everywhere that uh that i unfortunately left a lot of blood on um it was a, <laughs> my, my gosh <laughs> it was a it was a trying experience but it was a lot of fun and i have to give a shout out to my to my crew i had a great crew my family was there my wife was there they did a fantastic job making sure that i did not end up uh, face down somewhere on that course. And what was your final time? It was 23 hours? 23 hours, 9 minutes. And at what point in the race did you come closest to thinking, I've made a terrible mistake? Actually, in, in the words of Ron Burgundy, <laughs> I immediately regret this decision. Mile 20. Mile 20? Mile 20, yep, with 80 miles with oh 80 miles, 80 so miles one, left to go. One-fifth of the way through. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, but but it changes. That, that's the amazing thing about a hundred mile race. At mile twenty, you can feel like I have made a terrible mistake. What have I done here? And then by mile twenty five, I was like, this is the greatest thing I've ever done. I don't know why I just thought of this, but you know, nineteen nineties. There's this movie called Seven, which is yes. Bear with me on this. You know, Brad Pitt's chasing down Kevin Spacey. I think who's this <laughs> yep. serial killer. Morgan Freeman is the, the cop who's getting ready to retire, and Brad Pitt's his partner. If you're about and, to compare it, me to a psychotic serial killer, <laughs> <laughs> well. So there's one point in the movie where, where after they capture Kevin Spacey, where Brad Pitt turns around in the car and says, "Now, when you're when you're crazy, do, do you actually know that you're crazy?" <laughs> and I'm just, I, I want to know if, if you're if you're running a hundred mile race, do you ever point and say, "God, what? A, who who does this?" I mean, point zero 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 one percent of the population would even fathom doing something like this, and here I am, I'm doing it. Well, see, that's the thing about crazy people—they don't know it. There you go. So <laughs> good to know. Um, when it seems like whenever we talk about Disney, uh, most times it comes up that ESPN is a cash cow for Disney. Uh, but it turns out that uh, even ESPN is not immune to the rising cost of content because there are reports now that ESPN is laying off somewhere between 300 and 400 employees. Uh, uh, Maddie, that's upwards of 6% of their staff. Mm-hmm. I don't know about you. I was surprised when I saw this news because, again, ESPN just seemingly prints money for Disney. Uh, it's the workhorse 
Yeah, it, this was surprising to me. You know, we talk a lot about content, cost of content, when we talk about movies and, and TV shows. But gosh, it's nothing when you talk about sports. I mean, I'm looking at the the 1.9 billion dollars that ESPN pays every year to the NFL just for Monday Night Football. 1.9 billion. I mean, and they broadcast what 14 of those games, so that's more than 100 million per game. Yeah, that's incredible. And then, of course. They're paying seven hundred million per year to to baseball. That's that, that's a new eight year deal they signed last year. That was double what they were paying before that. Um, and then of course we know that the, they just signed this twenty year deal with the SEC. And they're launching an SEC uh, yeah. network. Um, so these are not, and, and they have the NBA and, and other things. And this is this is not cheap. And so uh, as much as we we are impressed with ESPN and its its earnings power, man, at some point the content costs catch up, and I'm, I'm sure it's it's caught up a little bit right now. Again, I I was caught off guard by this story. I was surprised that, again, that ESPN wouldn't lay people off given how profitable it is. And the more I read about this, the more I find myself wondering, to what extent is this gravy train ending? Maybe not anytime soon, but I don't think anyone looks at the cost of live sports programming and thinks to themselves, oh, that's going to come down over time. No, especially, well, you, and also, you've, there's more competition. you got NBC, which just launched their you know 24-hour sports network, and yep. I've heard News Corp is launching a Fox 24-hour sports network. So there are going to be more buyers in this market uh, at some point. And so, gosh, yeah, I, I'd see, I certainly see the content costs going up over time. At any point, do you think that there's going to be um, televised coverage of 100-mile races, and then we'll see our man Matt Coppenhaver running in them? <laughs> I think there's a greater chance that there'd be 24-hour cycles of, of the movie Seven, you know, <laughs> recurring but, on some channel. But 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 I will say, if they're if they're worried about the the costs of sporting events, they could probably secure the rights for 100, 200 bucks for for one of these. For, for, yeah. for one of those races, a couple hundred bucks, and you're you're you got it. Matt's looking for sponsors, so <laughs> send him an email. Exactly. Matt Coffinet for Matt Argusinger. Guys, thanks for being here. Thanks, Chris. As Thank always, you. people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's it for this edition of Market Foolery. Our producer is Matt Greer. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We're off tomorrow. We will be back next Tuesday. Enjoy the long weekend.